Uh, So this is God's word, Psalm 137. Uh, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Thank you, Jeremy, and thanks, Marco, for the clicker. Well, let's address the elephant in the room. Uh, It is not lost on me uh, that many of you will be sitting there with verse 9 ringing in your ears and wondering what on earth is going on. Uh, Did we really just hear Psalm 137 say, blessed shall be the one who kills your children? Well, yes. It's also not lost on me that the older ones of you might be wrecking your brains thinking, I'm sure that line wasn't in the Boney M song. (laughs) Uh, You'd be correct, it wasn't. Uh, I doubt whether Boney M would have had a number one hit for so long if all of uh, Psalm 137 was in the lyrics. Uh, It probably would never have been played on the radio, would it? Others of you might just be wondering what on earth I'm going to say at an all-age service on Psalm 137. And I can tell you I have been wondering that myself quite a lot as well. But actually, in truth and seriousness, I think verse 9 does give us a problem. Not because, primarily because of its content, which I'd, I acknowledge is a shock to us. But because of how that content sounds to our 21st century, mainly British ears. You see, the problem that verse 9 gives us is that it can eclipse everything else that's in the psalm. And the danger is then that we potentially misunderstand what the psalm is about. So please bear with me. I promise I will, uh, um, we will get to verse 9. But before that, we are going to have to do a bit of work. Uh, we need to start by trying to get our, our heads and our minds into the, the position of a 6th century BC Jew. Now, we can really thank the Bible writers who gathered Psalms together because Psalm 137 is really deliberately placed where it is. And that's going to help us loads today. If we really want to begin to feel the emotions of Psalm 137, it's helpful for us to remember what we've learned in past weeks. So let's cast our minds back. Even back to last summer, uh, and then through this summer, we have worked our way through Psalms 120 uh, to 134. Can, can anyone remember or remind me uh, or just interact with me about what those songs, uh, what those psalms were called? Had a specific name. Anybody? Thank you, Rachel. Yeah, the Songs of Ascent. 
They were what the gathered people of God used to sing as they came together for their festivals. Uh, but to make sure you've been listening over the pre previous sermons, let's see how you get on with this, this really difficult mini quiz. Okay, let's just try and get us off the ground. Okay, so really difficult mini quiz. Probably much too difficult for everybody, but let's see what we've remembered. Question one, where were the people of God heading when they, when they were singing the songs of ascent? Okay, it's a multiple choice, don't worry. A, were they going to a football match? Were they B, going to Jerusalem or Zion, as it's called? Or C, were they going to Taylor Swift? <laughs> Can anybody help me? Go on, Rachel. B, thank you. Yeah. Anybody can join in. It's all right. It's not just me and the two Rachels. Okay. Okay, question two. What was in Jerusalem that was so important to God's people? Is it A, Wagamamas? <laughs> B, Ninja Warrior? Or C, the temple? Yes. Thanks, Luke. Yeah, the temple. Absolutely. Well done. 100% so far. Okay. And then question three, final question, don't worry. What was so special about the temple? And I haven't got any clicks for this, sorry. But is it A, it represented God's presence with his people? So God's presence. Is it B, it's where sacrifices were made on behalf of God's people? Reconciliation. Or is it C, a place where they could express their reverence and worship of God? A, God's presence. B, reconciliation. Or C, reverence and worship of God. Hey, it was all three of them. Well done. Yeah, trick question. Okay. So, in the Songs of Ascent, the people of God celebrated their walk to Jerusalem. That's what they were singing. They were singing on the way to Jerusalem for the festivals. They celebrated and delighted in the past rescue of the Lord. They celebrated that he kept their covenant promises to be their God. There was, there was nowhere that that was pictured more than in the temple, in the middle of the Jerusalem, where God dwells with his people. Like psalm after psalm, as we've been going through them, that celebrated that fact. And in the last two weeks, they weren't songs of ascent, but we looked at Psalm 135 and uh, 136, which have continued to remind us of, God, uh, of Israel's history, of God's rescue, and how his steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, remembered last week as well. Okay. But now, in stark contrast, we have 137, which hits us like a sledgehammer. Where the previous Psalms sung about going towards Jerusalem. Just look at the contrast. Now, 137 is singing about being dragged into captivity as far away from Jerusalem as they can imagine. Where there was joy in the other Psalms, in Psalm 137, there is tears. Where there was singing, there's now silence except for the sound of weeping. Where there was rescue from enemies, there's now 
torment and vile mocking. And where there was delight of future generations of, of children remembering the Lord forever, Psalm 137 describes of how their children have been killed. Rather than being a song of ascent, Psalm 137 feels more like a song of descent. It's, it's a lament, a song to be sung together expressing the distress of exile. When God's promises seem to have failed, when evil seems to have won, and where there seems to be no justice. So if we begin to understand the reason for the song, we can begin to understand about the sense of, of what is written. The first thing that might strike us, and, and something helpful to notice, is that it is a song about not singing. A song about not singing, verses 1 to 6. The psalm looks back to the time when they've been defeated by the Babylonians and, and carried into Babylon in exile, whilst their neighboring Edomites looked on and laughed at them, calling for the utter destruction of, the, of Jerusalem. And straight away it's clear from verses 1 and 2 where we are, the, the writer tells us, by the waters of Babylon, as he poetically describes the memories of that time. Gone now are the days of joy and celebration. All that's left is sorrow and distress. The distress of being wrenched away from Zion. They sit down and weep next to the Babylonian waters and they hang up their instruments. But it's not like they can't sing. The pain might be immeasurable in the psalm. But they do have songs of lament that they've already been given. They, they have psalms that they can sing. But instead we see in verse 3 why, why they don't sing. Verse 2 says, On the willows there we hung up our lyres. Verse 3, For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us, some of the songs of, sing us one of the songs of Zion. See, what's happening is that they are being ridiculed and tormented by their captors. And what's more, the Lord is being mocked too. He's being mocked because the songs of Zion that they've been assessing celebrated the majesty and protection that Yahweh had given over his people. So when the Babylonians are asking them to sing, they weren't asking for a, a Jewish cultural lesson or inviting their 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 captives to share some of their ancient traditions with them. They're mocking them. Sing as one of the songs of Zion. Go on. One of the songs you used to sing on your way to Jerusalem. The ones about the temple and how you'll be there forever. Where's your God now? In the temple still? In that heap of rubble that we knocked down, is he? Come on, sing as a song. The Babylonians wanted to convince the Israelites that the Lord had forgotten and abandoned them. And they were doing that by getting them to sing one of the songs of Zion while they were defeated. They were implying that the Lord was weak, was powerless, and could not deliver his people. 
So this helps us make total sense of verse 4. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It, they're not saying that because they're, they're saying God's left us, we're giving up. It's actually, in fact, an act of silent defiance. Despite their sorrow upon sorrow that they're feeling, and despite the consequences that they might face for not singing, they might get a beating for not singing. Well, actually, they are refusing to bow to the pressure of their conquerors. Because to do so would mean that the Lord is mocked, too. How can they gladly sing the songs of Zion without the Babylonians just laughing in their faces and ridiculing the Lord? But even though they're not singing, the psalm shows us that, that, shows us that they do worship. Firstly, it shows us that by how they commit their hearts and their situation to the Lord. Uh, so let's have a look at verses 4 to 9, where they worship without singing. How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, asked the psalmist. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right, right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of, roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Now, as, as bleak, as terrible as their situation is, the psalmist calls down a curse upon himself if he should ever forget the Lord's promises and goodness. Let's remember that Jerusalem is not just a physical city for him. It represents um, the place of blessing that God has promised them. It, it is the, the representative of all God's promises. Jerusalem is that picture. So if he forgets Jerusalem, if he doesn't set it as his highest joy, he says he'd rather lose everything than that. I will not sing against my Lord. Whatever is facing me, even in my darkest days, let Jerusalem, God's blessing, God's presence, be the highest joy in my heart. It's like the psalmist is saying, I would, I'd rather lose everything than turn away from the Lord. For the psalmist, who's a musician, his hands, his tongue were everything. They were the most precious thing he could have from an earthly sense. They're everything to him. Like if, if Ed goes back to, to play the worship songs at the end of the, my sermon and doesn't use his right hand and would tape up his mouth, he's not going to be able to sing quite well. You know, he's going to lose everything that he has in terms of that, that moment. So the psalmist's hands and his tongues, they're everything to him. But he says there's no point in having them if his heart is not set on the Lord. The psalmist lays down on the line what is the most important thing to him. What's his highest joy, his greatest treasure? He orients his heart towards God's blessing and promises and says that whatever the cost, you're my God. So everything else slots in the psalm slots into place when we understand this, even the tricky final verses. But in, the in those tricky final verses, we see that the, 
the people of God hold on to God's justice. I think this is probably the trickiest part of the heart song for us. But hopefully it will begin to make more sense now that we know some more of the background. Uh, before we go on, then, let's have some chocolate. Okay. Uh, got some celebrations. Is there any, any grown-ups in the room that like chocolate? Ro- Roman, Naomi... Uh, um, uh, Ethan and Tom, can you come and help me, please? Roman, what's your favourite chocolate? Uh, Of celebration, sorry. I've got a limited choice here, but... uh, Maltesers, Snickers, Mars... Mars? Okay. Tom, could you take that to, to Roman, please? Anybody else? Any other adults want a chocolate? Rachel, Rachel, what's your favourite? Bounty. Ethan, could you say that one? Anybody else want a chocolate? Maybe later. Maybe we'll have some later. So are you okay with that, Roman? (laughs) Is there anything wrong with what happened there? It was cruel. What do you want me to do about it? Anything? Should I do anything about it? Ah, that's a silly example. Okay. But maybe, maybe it begins to show us in a tiny way, a silly tiny way, how we can feel when something unjust, even the tiniest unjust thing happens to us. Now let's remember the psalmist. He has set his heart on Jerusalem, his highest joy. So these next verses, although they're difficult, I know they're difficult for us, but these next verses show how he responds to the terrible wickedness that has happened against God's people and God's name. In verse 7, we see he first asked the Lord to remember the Edomites. These were people, they were uh, not Babylonians, they were another nation nearby who'd followed the Babylonians into Judah and basically cheered them on from the sidelines. They'd called for the city to be utterly destroyed. Lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations, it says in verse 7. And, and the psalmist asked the Lord to remember them. Not in the way that you say, oh, remember me to your mum when you see her next. That, that, not, not that kind of remembering. But remember, acting with justice against them against their sin. If, if later on you want some more um, sort of background reading that will help, the prophet Obadiah records this whole situation, how the Edomites gloated over the victims. How, we, how they plundered what was left. 
how they attacked and killed all the escaping fugitives, the ones that people in the Babylonians hadn't taken, that the Edomites killed at the crossroads, it says. One commentary describes them as being like hyenas swooping in after lions have killed their prey. And the psalmist demands justice, cries out for justice. But then in verses 8 and 9, he turns his attention to the Babylonians, asking the Lord that they be dealt with justly too. The Babylonians who, in the middle of everything else, in their destruction of Jerusalem, had pulled Israelite children out of their arms and, and killed them in front of them. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us, cries the psalmist. And, uh, the killing of, of children was not something that was unique in this situation. It was an awful and common part of bringing terror to the nation that you were conquering. It was a way of subduing that nation and tragically killing the next generation. So it was horrible, it was brutal, but it was an effective part of warfare. I'm not saying it was a right part of warfare, but it was effective. It did, it, it stopped the enemy nation. But I think that the thing that shocks us more in Psalm 137 is not that the Babylonians had conquered the Israelites in this way, but that the psalmist says that the one to bring about retribution will be blessed or happy or right is another translation for it. Right shall he be who repays you. Right shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That sounds terrible to our ears. We question, can it be right for it to be in the Bible? How can the psalmist pray curses against his enemies in such a horrible way? Well, I, I recognize you might disagree with me. And I will, I'll gladly discuss this over coffee with anybody afterwards. But I'd like to suggest that in the face of the truly awful suffering that the exiles were facing and forced to endure at the hands of the Babylonians, the response that the psalmist calls for is actually incredibly restrained. Our, our ears and hearts don't feel that. But when we look at it in the light of what is happening, um, it is restrained. Let me try to explain. On the receiving end of such wickedness, it would not be surprising for someone to want retaliation or to utterly lose control of themselves and reap vengeance on their enemies at the earliest opportunity, tenfold or more. Even for small, insignificant things, we know, we, we know what feels, uh, we, sorry, we know what sort of injustice feels like, don't we? We know how we feel that somebody eating a chocolate in our face is wrong when, when it's meant for us a few, weeks, a few minutes ago. How many times have you had that sort of inner voice in your mind as you've looked upon something and you thought, that is not fair? It might be a big thing or a small thing. I don't, I don't want to make light of a serious passage, but to my shame, you know, I get a sense of outrage when Naomi takes a chip from my plate 
I'm not saying that that is right uh, outrage, but that rises up inside me. And I, she didn't want chips, and now she's thinking, oh, what is going As if I've deserved those chips or something, that they're my right to have those chips. That little thing can get my emotions up. It might feel unjust. In, in that moment, what is my highest joy? My love for Naomi? Or the love of my own belly? Or the love of the things that I perceive to be mine? If you break up any fight between any children, and you normally hear that it was the other person who started it, from both children, and that the punch of, punch of retaliation that they landed was absolutely fair in their eyes. We have this inner barometer of, of right and wrong, fair and unfair, but often our perception of that is way out of balance. But the Bible tells us that there is a right time for anger. God, unlike us, has an absolutely perfect crystal crystal clear view of evil and wickedness and justice. He will not allow wickedness to go on forever and he is committed to ending all injustice. Whether or not we like what Psalm 137 says here, the psalmist is doing exactly what is permitted in Old Testament law, which neither says that you just ignore wrongdoing and forget about it when someone sins against you, nor that you can just do whatever you like to pay them back. The Old Testament law demanded and set out boundaries for justice, but always in a way that was proportionate to the offence. Here in, verse, in, in verses 8 and 9, without losing any of the cry of anguish over the suffering they've endured, the psalmist holds back from taking things into his own hands He doesn't take personal revenge, but calls out to the Lord and asks for absolutely proportionate retribution for the terrible evil that has been carried out against the people of uh, Israel and against the Lord's name. And I know that might sound shocking to our eyes, but he's doing exactly the right thing in the bounds of Old Testament law. He recognizes that wicked has been done and there must be a response. Something I read this week, put it like this. We might ask ourselves if we are really superior to the psalmists in our revulsion of their cause for justice. Or, or if, in fact, we are perhaps less in love with good, less opposed to evil than they were. A fair question that's possibly on your mind, is should we be singing Psalm 137 today? But we need to remember that Psalm 137 is not first and foremost about retribution. It involves calling for retribution, but we must see that the psalm is about our highest joy in the middle of pain, terrible pain and suffering. The writer turns his eyes back to the sorrow of days of persecution and hardship and and uses them to remind him of what his highest joy is. And everything else in the psalm flows out from that. If Jerusalem, or again, God's blessing is his highest joy, 
then that makes sense that he, he cries out for justice of, of, uh, in response to how God's name and God's people have been treated. And the same should be true for us. So the first question we have to ask ourselves is, what is my highest joy? Is it my status? My independence? My family? My reputation? My exam results? My career? My phone? I I know some of those things are, are better than others. Some are really good things. But all of them can grab our hearts and become our highest joy. Our lives can be shaped by them. And we'll rage and we'll shout or be broken when they're taken away from us. But if we're Christians, our highest joy should be the same as the psalmists, the promises of the Lord, which for him were represented by Jerusalem where God dwelled with his people. When the Lord is our highest joy, our hearts will be realigned and our perseverance through suffering and our cries for justice should begin to look less about me and more about God's glory and his plans to make all wrongs right. That maybe still doesn't give us an answer whether we should sing Psalm 137 though, does it? Ultimately, we know from history and we know from other books in the Bible like Obadiah, Isaiah, Jeremiah that judgment, justice, did fall upon the Edomites and the Babylonians. The Lord will not and does not look upon evil and leave it unchecked. But that leaves all of us with a problem. We might not have committed the same atrocities as the Babylonians, but on our own, our hearts, our actions and words have still scoffed at God with the same venom as the Edomites and elevated ourselves over others like the Babylonians. If Psalm 137 gives us a glimpse at the atrocity of sin and shows us that the Lord deals with wickedness, it means he has to deal with mine too. But remarkably, whilst the psalmist only saw in part the promises of the Lord, we have a fuller picture of how his commitment to deal with sin Uh, Sorry, a fuller picture of his commitment to deal with sin and oppression. We see that the Lord was so committed to deal with it that he came himself to deal with it. See, the, the extraordinary thing about the cross of Christ is that we simultaneously see two things at the same time. On the one hand, Jesus absolutely identifies with the broken and subdued people of God. He, of all people, would know the pain of being treated with shame and scorn when it was totally undeserved. He was the Son of God and worthy of all praise, but he was mocked and reviled by the people who should have worshipped him. The taunts of the Babylonians saying, sing us a song of Zion, where's your God now? Don't sound too dissimilar to the taunts of the Pharisees who looked upon him at the cross and said, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. Jesus fully identifies with the persecuted. But at the same time, 
we see his utter revulsion at wickedness as he takes every sin upon his back and feels the full weight of the wrath of God falling down upon him. He is dashed. He is cursed as he takes the just judgment for every sin. And as his persecutors hung him there, he cried, forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they do. So on the, on the cross, we see his commitment to once and for all, one day end all suffering, yet at the same time ending all sin. The Bible ends with the book of Revelation where all wrongs are made right. The Babylonian of the, uh, sorry, the Babylon, Babylon of the bigger Bible story is forever thrown down with all wickedness and the new Jerusalem comes from heaven where God will dwell with his people forever. Now we are not there yet, but knowing Jesus' commitment to end all sin and make things right is what spurs us on now. So despite the strangeness of how Psalm 137 sounds to us, I'd like to suggest that it is a really important psalm for us. It teaches us that there must be a response to suffering and evil. And even if we ourselves have, have not or are not currently experiencing evil acts, we don't have to look far in society or around the world to see that, that it exists. The psalm shows us that we can pray for justice. I think it teaches that if we truly say our highest joy is Christ, then we must pray for justice. And in the light of the gospel of Christ, we can see that justice will be done. I think personally, I think the psalm has shown me just how sheltered I often am, how little I think about justice and, and how little I think about God making things right. A pastor friend from Ukraine recently told me that psalms like this one have become much, much more real to him in the last 18 months. We've seen in the news this week and last week about, about Pakistan and, and Christians there. We can, we should stand in prayer alongside brothers and sisters there who've, who've had their homes burned down and lost everything just because they're Christians. And we can weep for others in Myanmar, North Korea, Iran, and, and elsewhere. People who even today at this moment are facing oppression because of their faith. And as their accusers mock and taunt them, asking, where's your God? We can pray for their perseverance. Perseverance beyond what they think they can endure. But we can also join them in praying for their persecutors too, which many of them do. Just as a final consideration, um, we often pray your will be done, don't we? We pray the Lord's Prayer nearly every week here. Yet the words are so familiar to us that they just trickle off our tongue. Every time we pray that, we are praying for the Lord's justice to reign, but we hardly think about it. So I'm going to pray that now. I'm going to pray the Lord's Prayer and the band will come back up. You can pray with me if you want, but I know normally we say corporately, if you just want to listen and reflect on the words, that, that's fine with me. I'm happy just saying it on my own as people listen. But if you want to pray along, you, you can do. Let's pray. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen.